Alrighty, welcome to the program. What's going on? Welcome to the Pete Callender Show. Thanks for listening. And if you like the content, please subscribe to the podcast. And uh, you can do that by going to thepetecallendershow.com. I've got links to all of the podcasting platforms. And in fact, we're now back up on the iHeartRadio app. See that? It, it only took three months. <laughs> it only took three months and... Uh, the coronavirus, uh, but uh, but I'm back up on the iHeartRadio app as well. So I think that is just about all of the podcast platforms, at least that I'm aware of. If you know of any more, feel free to send me an email or join the Facebook group and let me know. Uh, the Facebook group is the Pete Callender Show, where we solve all of the world's problems and we have fun doing it. The show is made possible by good people like Alan and Catherine and Brain. <laughs> and well, that's the name I got here, uh, as well as NC38 and Nancy uh, and and Mark as well. Thank you very much for all of the support over the years. I appreciate it. Uh, and also, the show is made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus, oldgrouch.com, located on Main Street in downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun for more than three decades Old Grouch's Military Surplus has been helping people find uh, the items that they've been looking for. These, this is an old school traditional store, but it's got a mix of uh, vintage stuff, but also modern stuff. And it's all real military surplus. See my friend Tim. He will hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time. I believe his store is now closed to comply with all of the uh, state and uh, federal recommendations. Uh, but you can go to the website, oldgrouch.com, oldgrouch.com, and uh, you can shop that way and you can uh, get in touch with Tim uh, as well. And if he doesn't have it in his store, he's going to be able to find it for you because the guy's got connections all over the place for this stuff. Uh, so you can help be prepared. Uh, but also if you're looking to, you know, even put on a, a, a play at the school and you need some actual uh, costumes and such, you need some stuff for that, uh, great place, oldgrouch.com. Old Grouches. Um, all right, so what do we got here? A couple of things going on. The um, I've got an interview here in a bit with Brene Goforth uh, about telemedicine. The president did a press conference, lasted almost two hours. Of course, most of the uh, uh, CNN coverage, they bailed on that. Um, yeah, I, don't, I couldn't, I can't imagine why. Why would they do such a thing? Um, but also, there's been some, uh, I saw some rumors but uh, about whether or not there's going to be a, a curfew in North Carolina. I have not heard anything about a curfew per se. However, there are states now that are, uh, under a shelter in place. So I guess you can kind of call that a curfew. If by curfew, you mean you're not allowed to leave it at, at all, right? So they're advising everybody shelter in place. Don't leave the house. This is the week. I've been saying this now for days. All indications were that this is the week where you're going to start seeing a ramp up in the number of cases. And I know there are a lot of people that are skeptical about all of this and they're like, oh, I don't see it here. Okay, well, Buncombe County just picked up another five cases since the last time I did the show. So in 24 hours, we got more cases. This is a highly contagious virus, highly contagious. A lot of people who get it, never going to know they got it. Because it'll just manifest, which is really weird. It manifests itself so differently in different people and in different populations, uh, age groups, basically. But um, 
but it's spreading now and and they can now track it that it is it has spread by uh community transmission it's what the uh North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services said, uh, the secretary, Dr. Mandy Cohen. And uh, here, this was from their news conference this week, Dr. Cohen uh, talking about the shelter-in-place orders. Last night, the CDC updated who is at greatest risk. And let me go through that in detail. First, they codified that it is those who are 65 years and older in terms of age that are at higher risk. Also, people who are living in a nursing home or long-term care facility. That's why you saw today in the executive order, we mandated further limitations on visiting at nursing homes. People with high-risk conditions, including chronic lung disease or moderate to severe asthma or heart disease with complications. The CDC also included people who are immunocompromised or people at any age with severe obesity or certain underlying medical conditions, particularly not if not well controlled, such as diabetes and others. The CDC also advises that women who are pregnant should be monitored since they are known to be at risk with severe viral illnesses. However, to date, COVID-19 has not shown an increased risk. While children, as we've been talking about, are generally at lower risk for severe infection. Some studies indicate a higher risk among infants, another area to be vigilant. This expanded definition for high risk by the CDC further emphasizes the need for all of us to commit to social distancing. Right, which I've been doing, I've said this, like I've been doing this for years, just, you know, voluntarily. Um, Yeah, just, you know, walking around, keeping my distance from everybody and everything all the time. It's been uh, very helpful. Um, so new information on uh, who is at greater risk. thought it was interesting, people with asthma. So that's across all age groups. One of the things she talked about as well is that the more data that we are able to collect, the better we can respond. But we still don't know uh, a lot. We have tested more than... 8,400 people with thousands more with samples collected waiting for results. And this posture means we now have a snapshot of COVID-19 in North Carolina. And we know with certainty we have what's called community transmission, meaning we don't know how some people are getting COVID-19. They haven't been exposed to someone who is positive or haven't had a travel exposure. The role testing should play in the first phase of an outbreak has helped us understand the virus. And as I said last week, we confirm community transmission, so this signals that we need to move into the next phase of our response. We've been working very closely with our physician community on how to move into this next phase of response. I've spoken with thousands of doctors over the weekend, leaders from across our state, Our physicians and other clinicians are true heroes. They know this unprecedented pandemic will require new ways of interacting with their patients with a big emphasis on telephone and video appointments. They know that there'll be new ways of protecting themselves, following the up-to-date guidance on what protective equipment they should use in different settings, and in the new ways that they'll need to be leaders in their community. 
As doctors and other clinicians, we all share the concern about not wanting our patients to come to places where they could potentially get sick. So for those who think they might have COVID-19 and have mild symptoms, things like fever or cough, the CDC has now recommended that you stay at home. You can call your doctor to see if you need to be seen at the office in another or another setting. And remember, the vast majority of people who get COVID-19 will have mild illness and recover at home. Your doctor or your local health department or your community health center can help you determine what is the best course of action for you. In looking at other countries and other states that are further ahead of us into this pandemic, we know we need to do everything we can so fewer people get sick at the same time. We need our medical systems to be there for everyone who needs the care, and it's about saving lives. Right. So that's that, that's the, quote, flattening the curve uh, approach. That's the tactic. That's what it's all about. Not overwhelming the system all at once when everybody gets sick and all at the same time, and they require intensive treatment because if you do that, you overload the system, and then they can't care for people um, because there's just too many of them and you run out of supplies and you don't have the manpower and everything else. Now, she did talk there about new ways uh, for doctors to be able to interact with and to care for their patients. And so we're going to talk with Brene Goforth from the John Locke Foundation uh, about telemedicine. Uh, but first, Rowena Patton, you know, I've talked about her program, the Homes for Heroes program for years. Rowena Patton was one of the first people uh, to advertise with me when I started the show in Asheville back in 2012. And she and the All-Star Powerhouse team back then, they've been part of this Homes for Heroes program ever since I've known her. And they've given back almost 800, about $800,000 now to local uh, police officers, military, firefighters, educators, but also healthcare professionals. Those are the five professions and healthcare professionals. I think there's... I mean, I understand people have always had an appreciation for healthcare workers, but I think even more so now, just a little bit, you know? And look, Rowena Patton understands that the current events have impacted us all in very different ways. And if you've been maybe looking to buy a house, you might be wondering, how do you even do that? How do you proceed with that? Well, with Rowena Patton, your search doesn't have to be postponed, okay? She is offering uh, walking tour videos since uh, and has since 2007. It's just like the real thing. And you don't ever have to leave your house, right? She'll walk the house and show you everything uh, that's going on in the house and all the different angles and uh, the views from different parts of the of the, uh, of the the rooms and such. So start out with a video consult. Call Rowena Patton, the only agent that I would call if I'm buying or selling a house, 333-4483 or mountainhomehunt.com, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. So now more than ever, it's clear that the federal and state governments need to ease regulations on telemedicine. This is the argument advanced by Brene Goforth. She is a communications associate at the John Locke Foundation and a policy analyst for Young Voices, and we welcome her to the show. Hey, Brene, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Certainly. Welcome. So, um, First thing I guess I should ask you is what types of regulations exist right now on telemedicine in general? Right. There are 
multiple different kinds of regulations that pertain to telemedicine. Some of the most common ones are uh, prescription regulations. So, say, in South Carolina, you can't be prescribed uh, controlled substances through telemedicine. And up until recently in Texas, you couldn't be prescribed anything until having a in-person meeting with a doctor first. Um, and then there are, of course, in-state licensure regulations, which require, say, in North Carolina, that you have a North Carolina state license to practice medicine. Um, and so those things prevent certain telemedical providers from being able to offer services in your state because it requires them to uh, sort out and have particular um, healthcare professionals who are licensed in your state specifically. So I know that, and this is, um, this kind of gets into the the argument or the debate, I guess, on licensing in general. Uh, North Carolina has a ton of these types of licensing requirements. Uh, so not to kind of go down that path per se, but uh, generally speaking, don't a lot of these types of regulations, don't they come out of either some abuse or some scandal or somebody did something bad? And so uh, you know, in swoops the government uh, or uh, like the medical association, and they say, you know what, uh, we're going to make sure that, you know, this is the way that things should be done. And so uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt here uh, that these these regulations come from a good place, uh, good intentions. Yeah, so I think that most of our most of our laws do come from good intentions, but sometimes the consequences are are not quite what people expected. So, for instance, in every state in the United States, you have to be licensed as a medical provider in that particular state. And, uh, you know, doctors in New York are just as qualified and capable as ones in North Carolina or South Carolina. Um, the concept that they, they shouldn't be able to prescribe simple medications for, you know, pink eye or for UTIs or something like that seems, uh, you know, a little restrictive, particularly in a time like right now when we are running short on healthcare professionals uh, every day, let alone during an epidemic like we're having right now. Increasing the accessibility and uh, the supply of doctors in North Carolina will definitely help to flatten the curve of the coronavirus epidemic that we're seeing right now, as well as um, to improve social distancing by preventing people from going into emergency rooms and, uh, you know, hospital waiting rooms and either giving someone whatever kind of uh, communicable virus that they have or contracting it from somebody else. So there are obviously some benefits to this, and it's probably more obvious to the younger generation than the older generations. <laughs> uh, but because uh, it's it, there is going to be some newness to overcome. I recognize that for a lot of older people, but some of the benefits are obviously, I think the biggest benefit is probably speed, right? Like you can get in to see someone because you don't have to get in anywhere, right? You just turn on the computer, turn on your smartphone, and you're now seeing a doctor. Absolutely. So definitely speed is one of them. Uh, my last telemedicine appointment took less than 15 minutes. And by comparison, an emergency room visit takes over two hours on average. And 71% of those uh, instances of, you know, going into the emergency room could actually have been done at a primary care provider in urgent care or via telemedicine. So this is definitely something uh, that if it was used more 
often not only would the people using it experience lower wait times, but you could also lower wait times in emergency rooms by taking people out of there who don't need to be there. On top of that, there is the cost savings, of course. So um, it costs anywhere between $30 if you have insurance to $75 if you don't have insurance for a telemedicine appointment. And $75 is still significantly cheaper, particularly for those without insurance, than an urgent care or anything like that. So there is, of course, those kinds of benefits as well. Right. You're not having to pay for all of the um, uh, the capital costs of a full medical facility if somebody is able to uh, see a patient. And in your case, you offer you know uh, 15 minutes. Uh, you can also see a lot more patients more quickly, and uh, you can generate uh, from the doctor's perspective, right? You can generate uh, a significant amount of income in a shorter amount of, of time seeing far more patients, it seems like. Yes, if you have more patients, if you can see patients more efficiently, then, then you can afford to charge less per appointment. And that's what we see in the telemedicine uh you know, sphere is that the appointments do cost less, uh, they're faster, they're more convenient for the patient. And, you know, when it's a time like this, and you don't want to go into a hospital or something like that for fear of contracting something, uh, you just call in from your couch, you go pick it up through the drive through pharmacy, and you've had little to no contact with anyone. And that helps prevent, like I said, you know, some of that communicable you know, disease and virus going around and spreading to other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the other benefits, 24 hours a day service, right? You can, I, I would venture to guess that you could see a business model, if it hasn't already been developed, uh, of 24-7 telemedicine care, basically, that uh, would allow people anywhere to get access to medical professionals uh, instead of having to wait until the next morning. Absolutely. That is definitely one of the benefits of this is that you can see them from anywhere at any time. And that allows you to get immediate uh, help, immediate service from a healthcare provider, even if you're not close to your primary physician or, um, you know, if the next hospital is so far away. Now, there are limitations to this, right? This doesn't, this is not going to completely replace in-person visits. Um, it, it can't. Uh, one of the downsides is also one of the upsides, right, is that there is no contact between the doctor and the patient. And sometimes you actually need <laughs> to have contact with your doctor, right? Absolutely. So if you've broken your arm or something like that, there's, there's not really a whole lot they're going to be able to do for you. Um, but, you know, for simple things, for the most common things that, you know, people and their families deal with on nearly an every day basis, right? Um, when you need an antibiotic because you know you eye, or if you need some drops to put in your eye because you know you have pink eye or your kid does, um, you know, this can be a great solution for you, particularly for children who really don't want to go to the doctor. They may really not enjoy being there. It may be a chore to get them there. This can make it seem a lot less scary for a lot of people and can actually hopefully increase the amount of time that you're able to speak with the doctor and feel comfortable about it. Because one of the things that keeps people from seeking care is this anxiety around going to the hospital or going to the doctor's office. And if you can do it on your couch, hopefully that alleviates a lot of that fear for a lot of people. I know it does for me. One of the other... Um uh, uh, limitations, I suspect, or uh, it, maybe not, it's not even a limitation. It, 
I see this as a potential avenue, though, for abuse. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, the opioid crisis. You know, how do you mm-hmm. prevent uh, a pill mill from operating uh, a telemedicine type of operation? How do, how do you stop somebody from doing that? And I understand, you know, you're not stopping doctors from be, from being able to run one out of a clinic. Uh, but it seems like it's, it would be a lot easier to do it if you have some people that aren't of the highest ethical standards, shall we say, that could run uh, a pill mill operation very easily just online. So that is a concern that, that people do bring up. And, of course, that is one of the things that South Carolina tries to mitigate with uh, not allowing for online doctors to be able to prescribe controlled substances, opioids, things like that. So there's one avenue to go about that. Um, and, and it's true that it's difficult to prevent that kind of behavior, no matter what it is, if it's in person, if it's, if it's not, um, all of those kinds of things. So there's there's so much that you can do to prevent that, but it also requires you, whenever you do a telemedicine appointment, um, to have your medical history and things like that. So it's really to the extent that uh, you could just go to a new doctor and, you know, have them prescribe you new pills because they don't know your medical history, that would be the same thing that applies to telemedicine. And that applies to all doctors, frankly. Um, so it does have some of those concerns, but I would not say that they are significantly higher than in-person medicine. Is there anything else that... Uh uh, that you think is important or interesting that we haven't already covered on this topic before we let you go? Yeah. So one of the things uh, that we mentioned before was in-state licensure. And one of the ways that some states have decided to alleviate the burden of in-state licensure is that for doctors who already have a license in another state, there's a thing called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. And People, six states, are considering entering it this year. Hopefully, you know, this kind of pushes them to consider it. What it does is it fast-tracks people who already have um, medical licenses in different states. It fast-tracks their application in other states so that they can help patients in more than one state. And hopefully, that will work out for telemedicine to allow people who are not physicians in North Carolina one day to be able to uh, treat patients here. And we can expand telemedicine to reach people where and when they need it most. Brene Goforth. You can read her analysis on all of this in the Washington Examiner. It's a, a piece with the headline, Telemedicine Will Make Us Better Prepared for the Next Coronavirus. She's a communications associate at the John Locke Foundation and a policy analyst for Young Voices. Brene, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. My mistake there, that was actually the Washington Times where this piece uh, appeared. The Washington Times Telemedicine will make us better prepared for the next coronavirus. Um, another piece here at Foreign Affairs by Kurt Campbell and Rush Doshi, titled The Coronavirus Could Reshape the Global Order. And I think this is pretty, uh, uh, there's some pretty important uh, facts that they bring to light here, even though I don't necessarily agree with all of <laughs> the piece. It's Foreign Affairs, and these guys are, well, I'll tell you here, Kurt Campbell is chair and CEO of the Asia Group and was U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs for Obama, uh, 09 to 13. And Rush Doshi is the director of the Brookings Institution's China Strategy Initiative and a fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. And so uh, both of them 
I'm going to go out on a limb and just take a guess. They are a little bit left of center. Okay. Uh, but I think they, I think if it doesn't occur, it needs to occur a reassessment of China's role as it relates to us and our economy. And uh, if this doesn't wake up people, I'm not sure what will. They write that global orders, and again, they take a, a, a very dim view of Donald Trump's leadership in all of this, uh, but uh, they do make some good points, I think, sort of at a, at a at a global level. So let me just bring you some of the highlights here. Global, high, uh, global orders have a tendency to change gradually at first and then all at once. And they talk about uh, 1956, there was a botched intervention in the Suez, and it laid bare the decay in British power, and it marked the end of the United Kingdom's reign as a global power. Today, U.S. policymakers should recognize that if the United States does not rise to meet the moment, the coronavirus pandemic could mark another Suez moment. Then they go on to rip the U.S. government, uh, state and local governments, the private sector, basically everybody, right? They just, it's all been just terrible. America stinks. If only we could be like China in their response, which again, for the record, I don't believe anything that comes out of China. As Washington falters, they say, Beijing is moving quickly and adeptly to take advantage of the opening created by U.S. mistakes, filling the vacuum to position itself as the global leader in pandemic response. It is working to tout its own system, provide material assistance to other countries, and even organize other governments. The sheer chutzpah of China's move is hard to overstate. After all, it was Beijing's own missteps, especially its efforts at first to cover up the severity and the spread of the outbreak, which helped create the very crisis now afflicting much of the world. Yet Beijing understands that if it is seen as leading and Washington is seen as unable or unwilling to do so, this perception could fundamentally alter the United States' position in global politics and the contest for leadership in the 21st century. By the way, Russia is also spreading propaganda, too, touting its help uh, that it's provided to Italy. The missteps of Chinese leaders cast a pall on their country's global standing. The virus was first detected November 2019 in Wuhan, but officials did not disclose it for months. They even punished the doctors who first reported it. They squandered precious time uh, by at least five weeks, and uh, they, when they could have halted travel, educated the public, uh, enabled widespread testing at that time. Even as the full scale of the crisis emerged, Beijing tightly controlled information. It shunned assistance from the CDC. It limited the World Health Organization travel into Wuhan. Uh, it likely undercounted infections and deaths, and it repeatedly altered the criteria for registering new COVID-19 cases, which is probably a deliberate effort to manipulate the official number of cases. As the crisis worsened through January and February, some observers speculated that the coronavirus might even undermine the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. It was called China's Chernobyl. The doctor, who was the whistleblower, Dr. Li Wenliang, silenced by the government, he later succumbed to complications. Uh, he was uh, likened to the, the tank man in the famous Tiananmen Square photo. Yet coincidentally, by early March, China was claiming victory. Mass quarantines, a halt to travel, a complete shutdown of most daily life nationwide were all credited with having stemmed the tide. Official statistics, such as they are from China, reported that daily new cases had fallen into the single digits. 
So the president over there, even uh, the president of China, even went to visit Wuhan personally. Look at this. It's safe. The president is there. And so now Beijing has been working to turn this narrative, uh, one that uh, makes China the essential player in a coming global recovery while airbrushing away its earlier mismanagement of the crisis. A critical part of this narrative is Beijing's supposed success in battling the virus, a steady stream of propaganda articles and tweets and public messaging in a wide variety of languages touts China's achievements and highlights and effectiveness of its model of domestic governance. It's all over Twitter. I'm amazed. It, it really is interesting. There are, there are people uh, that are popping into my timeline. Like You've got some of these accounts. When I first started Twitter, or on, when I first started on Twitter, I did not start it. I'm not Al Gore. Um, when I uh, first started on Twitter over a decade ago, uh, there was this, uh, the, the common uh, courtesy, essentially, was to follow everybody back. So if I followed you, you followed me. So at the beginning, I followed a bunch of people, and, and, they, and they followed me, and, and some of them run like travel blogs, and there's, so there are all these different types of people that I follow. And over the years, I've kind of unfollowed folks uh, along the way. But I came across one, like some woman who's a blogger and she like puts out inspirational stuff and she's out there retweeting and parroting the the Chinese government's propaganda. And Twitter came out the uh, yesterday, I believe, and said they're not going to take down the Chinese propaganda. So they'll label manipulated video all over Donald Trump's campaign videos, right? They'll They'll, yeah, they'll put their thumb on the scale for that stuff. But when China is out there, trying to mislead the world. And by the way, one of the risks of doing so, because we still don't know everything that happened over there. We still don't know to the extent that it was, um, that, that uh, how widespread it was, what actually worked, what measures they took, what were the, we, I don't have any confidence in that data. And so by China's propagandizing, we may not be able to understand the full complexity of the spread of this virus and what it is, Right. But Twitter's like, eh, you know what? It's China. We're okay with it. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So Beijing now has seized this narrative opportunity. Provided by American disarray. It's state media and diplomats regularly reminding a global audience of the superiority of Chinese efforts and criticizing the irresponsibility and incompetence of the so-called political elite in Washington as the state-run Xinhua News Agency put it in an editorial the other day. A reminder here, folks, China is not our friend. Chinese officials, I say that, not not the authors here. Chinese officials and state media have insisted that the coronavirus did not, in fact, emerge from China. They accused the U.S. military of spreading it around, and then they kicked all of the journalists out of China. The president of China understands that providing global goods can help burnish a rising power's leadership credentials. And so uh, when no European state answered Italy's urgent appeal for medical equipment and protective gear, China publicly committed to sending a thousand ventilators, two million masks, a hundred thousand respirators, 20,000 protective suits, 50,000 test kits. China has also dispatched medical teams and a quarter of a million masks to Iran. They've sent supplies to Serbia, whose president dismissed European solidarity as a fairy tale and proclaimed that, quote, the only country that can help us is China. Alibaba, which is like the eBay of China, the co-founder named Jack Ma, 
has promised to send large quantities of testing kits and masks to America, as well as 20,000 test kits and 100,000 masks to each of Africa's 54 countries. Do you see what they're doing? Does everybody see what they're doing? Oh, it's just humanitarian aid. They're buying goodwill. The material assistance is enhanced by the simple fact that much of what the world depends on to fight the coronavirus is actually made in China as well. uh, The pharmaceuticals, the masks, the machines... China's share of the U.S. antibiotics market is more than 95%. It's not just material goods. During the uh, Ebola crisis 2014-2015, the U.S. assembled and led a coalition of dozens of countries to counter the spread of the disease. The Trump administration, they say, has so far shunned a similar leadership effort to respond to the coronavirus. Even coordination with allies has been lacking. Remember, Europe wasn't aware that he was going to do the the travel ban? (laughs) For China, by contrast, has undertaken a robust diplomatic campaign to convene dozens of countries and hundreds of officials, generally by video conference. For years, by the way, I have been asking when we, uh, whenever this argument of you know America's role as uh, world's policeman and our place in the world and what should it be, I usually come around to asking people this question of if we're not going to be the world's policeman, if you don't want us to be that, right, and and all that that means, then who do, who would you prefer do it? Because somebody, you know, somebody is going to uh, uh, project their power. Who would you prefer it be? If not us, who would you prefer it be? And really, there's only been one or two countries that could actually do it, and uh, besides us, uh, and one of the, the most likely is China, always has been. China and Russia, right, but mainly China. They're the ones that are projecting their power outside of their shores. Are you going to be okay with this? This is what they're talking about uh, when they say the coronavirus could reshape the global order. Uh, now, they, they're advising, like, again, these are liberals, so they're like, you know, we can we can turn this tide if it proves capable of doing what's uh, at Washington, if it proves capable of what's expected of a leader, we need to manage the problem at home, supply global public goods, and coordinate a global response. Like, we need to be the leader of the world, right? Um, They recommend that government immediately support and subsidize expansion of domestic production of masks and respirators and ventilators. They want to provide incentives to U.S. labs and companies to undertake a medical Manhattan project, basically, uh, to create uh, uh, tests uh, and clinical trials and vaccines and stuff and then mass produce it and get them all out the door. They They want America to coordinate a global response. They say leadership will also require effectively cooperating with China rather than getting consumed by a war of narratives about who responded better. Little is gained by repeatedly emphasizing the origins of the coronavirus, which are already widely known despite China's propaganda, or engaging in a petty tit-for-tat rhetorical exchange with Beijing. I disagree, by the way, with them on this. I completely disagree with them. I'm of the opinion that you let no charge stand unanswered, right? When, When China comes out and says that it's the U.S. military that's spreading it, and then all of their propaganda bots go to work spreading this message, paying people to spread this message, it takes root. A lie travels around the world before the truth even gets out of bed, right? So I'm okay with pushing back on all of this, and frankly, I don't care if China doesn't like our response and Trump's response, calling it the Wuhan flu or the China flu or whatever. I don't care. I really, like you... 
you really can't measure how little I care about China's view on on whether or not we call the flu something with their name in it. Don't care. Um, they conclude by saying there is much that Washington and Beijing can do together for the world's benefit, coordinating vaccine research. Um, they say ultimately the virus might even serve as a wake-up call, spurring progress on other global challenges requiring U.S.-Chinese cooperation, like like climate change. Like Once again, these guys proving again they know nothing about why Trump won in 2016, right? They... I'm not sure you could have I'm not sure you could have exhibited it any better than they just did. Like, oh, this is going to make us work together. Again, guys, China's not our friend. They are our competitor. Some might even say enemy. Right? So, I'm not on board with this idea that we can work with China on all of this and then we'll all like be holding hands and this and that throughout. No. See, cuz China's uh response to the whole COVID-19 initially was not the behavior of an ally. That's not the behavior of a friendly power. It's not. So, not to me at least, I wouldn't do that to a friendly power. Trump ran on a campaign promising to get us out of uh, the world policing business, right? This is the thing that he wanted to do from the wall to the tariffs to every, like this is it in a nutshell. This is why he doesn't want to lead. It's because he said, I'm not interested in leading all of these other countries. I am interested in leading America. America first, remember? <laughs> this is this is what animates him. It's it's like it's amazing to me that we here we are four years down the road and they still don't understand his very obvious philosophy that he is espousing. We'll work with you, we'll do business with you. Commerce is fantastic. Love the other countries, they're great, but I'm an American. I'm looking out for us first. That's what his philosophy is. And look, there are pros and cons to this. Right. One of the things that you do seed is global leadership sometimes in some areas you're going to. Right. Obviously, because you're going to be focused on your own country. Nobody says, where are the Italians leading the world on everything? Like they need to lead this response. Nobody ever says that about the Italians or the Ethiopians. Right. Nobody ever says that about others. Where are the Canadians who who will lead us if not the Canadians? Nobody says this. OK, so uh, there are very few. Very few nations that can project this kind of power outside of their shores. We are one of them. And Trump is not interested in doing it in all circumstances. So, uh, and he's been very clear about that. I think from the very beginning, it's one of the few things he has been clear about. But these folks are still, I guess, in some sort of denial about it. I'm not really sure. Um, (laughs) You should not be in denial about uh, a new mattress. If you need a new mattress, chances are you probably already know this. Because you wake up and you feel just as sore and tired as you did when you went to bed, okay? Um, Mattress Man stores, locally owned and operated, four stores in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. This is where Christy and I got our mattress uh, years ago. We have a memory foam mattress. We love it. These are great people at Mattress Man. Uh, And when all of this stuff started going down, you know what they did? They went and rebuilt their website, because they said a lot of people are going to be wanting a mattress, but they're not going to want to come in and go shopping. They may not even be allowed to. So why don't we make this easier for them? And so they have redone their website. And so now you could buy online from the inventory they have in stock. And if you use the code RESTWELL, all one word, RESTWELL, you get an additional 20% savings on the site, on their website, mattressmanstores.com. And then click the shop online button. And you can 
order right now with free local white glove delivery. Okay, they have a 120-day comfort guarantee as well. It ensures that you're going to love your mattress, all right? Uh, and if you don't, they'll exchange it for free for that uh, within that limited time window of the 120-day comfort guarantee. Uh, you know, this is a time when you don't want to have to worry about getting a good night's sleep. Times are already difficult enough. Go to mattressmanstores.com. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. All right, let me get to this. Uh, other this yeah so this was the first soundbite and i'm only going to play this this is from the governor's press conference and i'm going to shift to the president's press conference but i see this criticism of president trump frequently and all the people around him is that every time you want to say anything at any kind of press event with donald trump present you have to praise him first have you heard this and it's it appears to be somewhat true everybody starts off by saying we love trump trump's fantastic he's a great president his leadership is awesome and they like they just like you know shower him with praise and then they make their statements and to the left this is infuriating they hate (laughs) this element of every single public event with the president which is why i found this soundbite kind of humorous from the Secretary of Health and Human Services in North Carolina, Mandy Cohen. Thank you, Governor. Thank you for your willingness to take aggressive action to protect North Carolinians. It's an honor to work for a leader who shows strength (laughs) and grace in the face of these very difficult situations. The measures the governor has taken use the strongest weapon we have at the moment to fight COVID-19. Love. Social distancing. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that too. Right. So, okay. So this, I just, I just found it funny. I just found it funny that here she starts her comments the other day with this effusive praise for Governor Cooper, almost like a Trump news conference. And by the way, nobody criticized her for that. Nobody, nothing crickets in the media. Um. All right. So now we're going to get, let me get to this. Uh, this is the Trump uh, press conference. It ran almost two hours. I watched it. Um, <clears throat> and listen to the line of questioning that he gets here from uh, from the reporters. This is sort of indicative. Uh, he, he's essentially saying, like, America needs to open again. He sent out a tweet about this uh, as well earlier. And so that's what prompts these questions. So take a listen here. So, yeah, it's bad. And it's going to, obviously, the numbers are going to increase with time. And then they're going to start to decrease And we're going to be uh, opening our country up for business because our country was meant to be open and uh, working with others, uh, but especially for our workers. And uh, the engine for that whole system is we have to have companies. And these companies are loved by our workers because they're paying big salaries and big big dollars to our workers, and we're going to get it all going again very soon, hopefully very, very soon. Please. Sir, I'm, I'm just trying to reconcile the two things that you just said. One, that uh, things are going to be very, very bad, uh, and two, that you want to get the country open back yeah. up as quickly as possible. So I guess my question is... If- Let me set for a second. What needs to be reconciled exactly there? says things are going to get bad, but we want to open the country up as soon as possible. Those are not in conflict. (laughs) Those two ideas are not in conflict, right? Why is he trying to reconcile any of it? In a week, uh, Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci are telling you we need to continue these measures uh, for the health of the vulnerable populations of the country. Are you going to say 
I'm sorry that the economy is too important. Um, well, you you'll see what happens. Uh, I, I understand the question very well. It's a, it's a great question, but uh, we can do two things at one time. I will say this. Our country's learned a lot. We've learned about social distancing. We've learned about the hands. We've learned about uh, <laughs> uh, staying away, at least during the time that this is even uh, a little bit around. Uh, this disease or or whatever you want to call it, many different names. You can go up many different names, but the virus, while it's around. All right, okay, great. <laughs> Let me just stop that. This is this is how Donald Trump speaks, right? This is one of my criticisms of him for years has been this this uh, word salad that he speaks in, and it is confusing. This is the whole oh, you're taking him literally, not seriously, and all of that kind of justification and excuse making for him um but on the other hand what he did say i thought i i mean i heard him say it he says we'll see what happens so i like i understand what his point was was that we don't know what's going to happen i want the country to be open as fast as possible in other words he's he's telling people who are making the case and i see this case being made all over and it's going to get increasingly vocal which is you're going to destroy america you keep this up, you're going to destroy the country. People are very concerned about it because most businesses, most small businesses do not have the luxury or the financial padding to last a month, let alone three, without any revenue. They will be out of business. This is not creative destruction in, in a free market system. This is not creative destruction. It's just destruction. That's all it is. And Trump understands this because he's a businessman and the journalist doesn't. It seems like what the journalist is fishing around for, and you'll hear it right here, is conflict. Somebody, uh, Dr. Burks, Dr. Who's, uh, her name is, by the way, Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House's coronavirus response coordinator. Uh, he, he's, he's trying to goad her into contradicting the president because the president is saying, we're going to have to make some decisions at some point. We can't stay closed forever. Oh, well, but the doctor's saying we need to stay closed for like months and months and months. And he's like, we may not be. We I, Like, no, we can't do that. But I don't know. It's all up in the air. What's the reporter doing? Asking a hypothetical. Because I swear, it's so annoying to me. All reporting is now speculative. It really is. When you start reading news stories... Just read for the speculation. It's all speculative. I've got the story here from Politico. I'll get to it in a second. Well, hopefully, if I don't run out of time. I don't think I'm going to run out of time. Um, all right, so here is, uh, here's the follow-up then from this reporter. Uh, and maybe Dr. Burks can speak to this. Do you share the president's optimism that in a week we might have a situation where we can say, you know, there's a few hot spots, uh, but much of the time... Well, I didn't say in a week, but I said soon. It's going to be right. soon. It's not going to be three or four months as... Uh, some people were saying, and a lot of people thought originally, but I would certainly yeah. let you and, answer. And are you worried that some of the cities and states that haven't had the infection yet are lagging indicators and that we're going to start seeing cases? So you've raised two important issues. One, I think you all know a lot of our tests have had to go to hospitals at this time so that we can diagnose people who are at risk to give them options to get these new therapeutic options. None of these therapeutic options are available if you don't know your diagnosis. So we've been very much focused on that. All right. And so then she goes on and starts talking about uh, different platforms for testing. And then uh, and then she concludes. Now with that this. we have all those platforms moving simultaneously, we can 
go back to doing case finding and surveillance in the areas that have the most lower numbers, as well as doing mitigation more aggressively in the places that have higher numbers. We went out with a very blunt force. I mean, we have to all be honest. We had to do that because we weren't sure where the virus was and where it is going. I think over this week, we're concentrated on figuring out exactly where the virus is and making projections about where it's going and the impact of our mitigation pieces. We learned this in, in tackling epidemics around the world. You have to focus the resources and the intervention and the structural prevention interventions in the areas where the virus is circulating. Right. Otherwise, people never understand why you're doing this and they don't have any virus. So it has to be very tailored geographically, and it may have to also be very tailored by age group, really understanding who's at the greatest risk and understanding how to protect them. But there's data showing within three months, as the president said, we won't need broad, uh, to follow these broad guidelines that we've the only data that we all have, and I think you all know what it is, the two areas that have moved through their curve is China and South Korea. All right, let me stop for a second because hear what the reporter is saying. So oh, do you have any data that suggests that in three months we're not going to need to do these things like the president says? The president didn't say that. The president said we have to reopen. The president is saying... At some point, we have to reopen, and he wants that to happen as quickly as possible. He is providing optimism to people who are afraid that this is going to destroy the country. And the journalist doesn't get it. It doesn't even register in his mind. So those are the two countries that we're learning from. Those were eight to ten week curves. Each state in each hotspot in the United States is going to be its own curve because the seeds came in at different times. So Washington State is on their curve. They're about two weeks ahead of New York. And so each of these have to be done in a very granular way to really understand where we are. And it's the charge that the president has given us is to use all of our data analytics and all of our data inputs to really define those issues about where the virus is, where is it going, and what predictions we can make about when, where we are in that bell-shaped curve. I think that's a great definition. And I will say we're going to be watching our senior citizens very closely. We're going to be watching uh, certain hotspots like New York. And within New York, you have areas which are troubling. And we'll be working with the governor and the mayor and everybody else on those spots. Uh, but at the same time, at a certain point, we have to get open and we have to be uh, we have to get moving. We don't want to lose these companies. We don't want to lose these workers. We want to take care of our workers. So we'll be doing something, uh, I think, relatively quickly. But we've learned a lot during this period. This was a very necessary period. Uh, tremendous information was gained. But we can do two things at one time. You know, and again, I say we have uh, a very active flu season, more active than most. It's looking like it's heading to 50,000 or more deaths, deaths, not cases, 50,000 deaths, uh, which is, uh, that's a lot. And uh, you look at uh, automobile accidents, which are far greater than any numbers we're talking about. That doesn't mean we're going to tell everybody no more driving of cars. So we, we have to do things uh, to get our country open. But this has been an incredible period of learning, and we'll have announcements over the next uh, fairly short period as to the timing. Yeah, so balance is what he's talking about. Balance. And federalism. 
right? This is this is the concept. What did Dr. Burks explain there? She says Washington State is in its own curve, right? All of our states, all of our areas are, are in different curves. I mean, if you look at the maps, you can see like right down the road from us and down in Atlanta, looks like they're you know they've got more cases, and that's going to their their curve is ahead of ours. And Washington is sort of the front. Uh, they're the first ones, and then New York and Los Angeles, and so there are, all of these areas are experiencing their their curve. And a curve, it's a bell curve, right? It looks like the ramp up that uh, you got more cases, and then deaths, and then recoveries, right? And again, what does flattening the curve mean? It means instead of it going super high, super quickly, you flatten it so it it, it it's still going to go high. It's just not going to go high quickly. The idea there is that you're able to see as many people as possible, help as many people as possible because you don't overwhelm the system, right? But when Washington State gets past its worst part of the curve here, then what, right? Well, then you're still going to have new cases. It's still going to be happening, but you can't keep the economy shut down while you're able to treat people. That's what he's talking about. Why is this so difficult for... Reporters to understand, I guess when you view everything through the prism of Trump hatred, I guess maybe that's the thing. Um, Ron wrote me an email. He says, at some point, the cure may be worse than the disease. In the Trump press conference, reporters are baffled at the concept that productive work is life sustaining. They can't grasp that lives will be shortened by continuing shutdown indefinitely. They speculate, oh, are you talking about suicides? Well, has work for most of us become so abstracted from survival that people no longer grasp the connection. By the way, suicides do go up when the unemployment rate goes up. So, yeah, there actually is a connection there as well. If you like the show and you want to support us, I appreciate all the support. Uh, Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. It's totally free. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution, head on over to the Pete Callender Show. There's a link to the Patreon page there, and you get exclusive content and merchandise. Thank you so much for the support uh, and for listening to the program. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Peace.